Well, dear brethren, it's a great privilege to be with you, and I appreciate the invitation from Pastor Rob. He has been a good friend, both he and Megan. Our family loves them as, as, as brothers, as a brother and sister in the Lord. We enjoy good fellowship with them, and it was a joy of my heart to accept the invitation that he gave to me, the invitation to come and minister the Word of God to you this evening. I'd ask that you turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation. I know that you have been going through a study in Revelation in the morning. We're going to backtrack a little bit now back to the third chapter of the book of Revelation. And Pastor Rob assured me you will remember everything that he taught you from back at that time. So this will be simply review, which is fine. But we in our church are going through the letters to the seven churches specifically, not the whole book. And so this is a portion that I ministered recently to them. So follow with me as I read Revelation chapter 3. This is the letter to the church in Sardis, beginning at verse 1 through verse 6. This is the holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, which lives and abides forever. Take heed how you hear. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us seek the Lord's help again by turning to him in prayer. Our great God in heaven, we sang a couple minutes ago of the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, how in his function as a priest, he pleads the blood that he spilt and he pleads the wounds that he bore on behalf of his people. And Lord, we would ask now also that he would exercise that office of a prophet, and that as the Catechism says, by his word and spirit, he would reveal to us the will of God for our salvation. Lord, we know that we, are, we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day that salvation will be brought to its completion, and you use your word by your spirit to save us. And we ask that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and a will to do all that you have, that we might enjoy the salvation that is to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus this evening will be specifically on verses 4 and 5. As the Lord Jesus Christ turns to those few in Sardis who had been loyal to him. But briefly, the first three verses, and by way of an introduction and background... The risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ had a message for those who were in Sardis. 
And it's a message not simply for that church, but for all the churches. At the end of this letter, it says, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, specifically the seven churches that all these letters were probably circulated to, but also for the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever they might be found. And his message to the church in Sardis is extremely sobering. His message is, you are a dead church. It's not very flattering. The Lord Jesus says, I know the reality of what's going on there. And though you have a reputation, a very glowing reputation, probably among the other churches that were around, and people look to you maybe as an example, a church that's really alive, I know you're not. You're dead. And he gives them a string of commands, urging them and encouraging them to change their course. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what they had heard and received to keep it and to repent. He also then presents a warning to them of what will happen if they don't heed his admonition, if they refuse to obey his calls of repentance. But serious warnings are not all that he had for the church in Sardis. He also had a message for the few that had been loyal to his name and to all others who would turn from this deadness and who would join those loyal few. And it's a call that comes to us today that if we would be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we are the minority, even if we are the remnant that the Lord is saving, that the Lord promises great rewards to those who would remain faithful to him and endure until the end. And so, brethren, as we read of these great rewards that are held out to those who conquer, uh, may we be encouraged. That's the intention of the Lord Jesus Christ this evening. We're going to be studying these two verses under two main heads. First of all, commendation. Commendation. That's the first half of verse 4. And then conquerors' prizes. Conquerors' prizes. And there are three prizes that we will see. So first of all, commendation. The Lord Jesus Christ says in the beginning of verse 4, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. Now, what does it mean to have soiled garments? Or more particularly, to be those who have soiled their garments or to have defiled garments. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is using a metaphor here. It speaks of the flesh and the world ha having been sta staining your life. It's the idea of walking through the course of this world, walking through the mess that is this world, the filth that is this world. And instead of avoiding all the wickedness and unrighteousness and ungodliness, you let it cling to you. You're not careful to avoid sin, but you let it accumulate, as it were, into your life and onto your garments. You're not careful to guard your heart. You're not careful to watch over your desires and, and the desires of the flesh. You don't mortify. And so you get these defiled garments. You get these soiled garments. And this passage is clear. Getting soiled garments is something that we are culpable for. It's not something that just sort of happens to us. It's something that we do. We soil our garments. We're responsible as we walk through this world to make sure that we are avoiding those things that the Lord Jesus Christ calls his people 
to avoid and to cling to the good that he calls us to cling to. And the commendation here is that there were a few in Sardis that did not have soiled garments, a few that were living righteous lives, in contrast to the majority. Now, before, before we move on, a couple points of application here, just very simple observations at this point. First of all, it's possible to be different. It's possible to be different. The vast majority of those in the church in Sardis had soiled garments, but not everybody. There were people who, in contrast to the overwhelming tide that was dead, they were swimming against the tide. In contrast to the deadness that was all around them, they were living. And my dear friends, they didn't sit back and say, well, you don't understand, it's so hard. I mean, really, I'm surrounded by deadness. I'm surrounded by immorality. I'm surrounded by wickedness. They didn't use these as excuses. They didn't say, well, if you knew my family, you'd know it's, it's almost impossible, really, not to be like them. If you knew my church, if you knew Western Massachusetts, if you knew the, the East Coast, if you knew the United States of America today, you, you'd know that being a real Christian, it's so hard. You can't blame me if, if I get soiled garments, if I become callous to the sin around me, if I absorb and adopt the sinful practices that are around me. That's not what the people in Sardis did. The Lord Jesus says, you're different, and he commends them for it. But not just is it possible to be different, sometimes it's necessary. The Lord Jesus doesn't say, well, listen, you live in such a wicked generation to the people of the church in Sardis, and there's deadness and wickedness all around you. You know what? I'm going to give you a pass. If you weren't different, you were being condemned. This wasn't an option like class A, Christian class B. It's you're commended or you're condemned. The Lord Jesus condemns those who are dead. He commends those who are living. And we're demonstrating that life by a righteous life. Sometimes it's necessary to be different in order to avoid the condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might be sitting here this evening, as many Christians have done throughout the history of the Christian church, and said, by God's grace, the Lord has enabled me to be different. I'm not perfect. But I am different from the world around me, from the dead churches around me, from dead orthodoxy. But you know what? Don't you feel, dear brothers and sisters, so often like we're the only ones? And it can be discouraging and depressing. And it can be hard then to persevere and to carry on. And I would say you're not the only one who's been in that boat. This is an age-old problem. One of the Lord's choice servants, namely Elijah, suffered that same discouragement when he thought, I'm the only one standing up for Jehovah. Everybody in Israel has abandoned his ways. Everyone's serving Baal. I alone am left serving God. And the Lord came to him with a corrective. And it's a corrective that we need to hear. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, after Elijah kind of, intimated, Lord, I'm the only one. God's reply to him was this. Essentially, you're wrong when you say that or when you think that. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And we need to remember this. 
when we feel like we're all by ourselves and there's no one who's being faithful to Christ, that there's a world of Christians out there that are in many pockets in this world that are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in countries that are closed in other parts of the states. The Lord has reserved many who are part of this minority that are being faithful to him. But also we see that we need to prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. When he comes and commends those who are in Sardis, these loyal few, he doesn't say, you know what, you have such a good vacation Bible school program. You guys were so good at running the audiovisual at the church. You teach such a good Sunday school class. Uh, you know, you do such a good job coming to all the services. Those are all good things. But that's not what separates, at the end of the day, someone who's living from someone who's dead. The Lord Jesus Christ prioritizes here a righteous life. This is primarily what he means when he says that these people were different. When he says he has a few in Sardis who had not soiled their garments, they were living righteously before him. Let us prioritize what Jesus prioritizes. And as we turn very soon to the conqueror's prizes, we need to finally see here that you won't get lost in a crowd with Jesus. Right? Jesus, he looked at the church in Sardis. His general judgment was, you're dead. His overall arching uh, defining characteristic and sentence upon the church was, you're dead. But he wasn't like us, who we see a group, we kind of give them a label, and that's all we see, right? That can happen, right? We, we give somebody a label, and that's all we see. Jesus didn't say, church is dead, and all I can see is deadness. No, he saw the pockets of faithful Christians that were in that church. He saw individuals who were remaining faithful to him. And he calls them out and he comforts them and he encourages them by saying, I see your God-glorifying life. You're not going to get lost in a crowd with Jesus. And Jesus had a habit and Jesus was known for being one who noticed individuals in a crowd, individuals who wanted him, individuals who were seeking him. You think of blind Bartimaeus, right? Jesus is walking, there's a crowd all around him, there's one man calling out for him. Everybody else is telling him, be quiet. Jesus says, I want to have dealings with him. Jesus noticed him. Or we think of the woman with the flow of blood. So many people pressing in on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls her out and he wants to speak a special blessing to her and encourage her. It's as though Jesus says, I see you in your need, despite everybody around you who might be surrounding me for many other reasons. Or even the thief on the cross, when again there's a crowd around Jesus, he turns to this man and deals with him, this man who wanted him, this man who was seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't get lost in a crowd with Jesus. As 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. Even if it's just one or two or three or a couple in a place, the Lord knows those who are his. Well, we turn secondly after seeing the people that the Lord Jesus Christ commends. We turn now to the conqueror's prizes. And there are three prizes that are held out in these verses. 
Now I'm taking the liberty, even though Jesus starts addressing the conquerors in verse 5, I'm taking the liberty of sort of grouping the end of verse 4 into group 5 and, and grouping it under three categories of prizes. And the prize number one is that they will walk with me in white, the Lord Jesus says, for they are worthy. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now what does walking with the Lord refer to? We could say, what does walking with anybody refer to? Well, what Jesus Christ is referring to is intimate communication, intimate fellowship, personal dealings, right? If I'm walking with somebody, they're close to me, even physically. I'm going to be interacting with them, talking with them, sharing things with them, revealing myself to them. And this is, this is what Jesus means by walking with him. There's intimate closeness Revelation, disclosure, fellowship, personal dealings. And you might be tempted to say, wow, what I have to look forward to in eternity if I'm one of the faithful ones. But it's possible even in this age to walk with the Lord. So we have examples of somebody like Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him away. Or Noah in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. And then, of course, we have even when Jesus was walking this earth himself, he had his disciples walking with him, and he was revealing himself to them, disclosing himself to them, comforting them, encouraging them, dealing with them in an intimate way. And who can forget those two privileged disciples who walked with the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Emmaus, how their hearts burned within them when they had this intimate communion and fellowship with the Lord. You see, dear saints, this was God's plan from the beginning. What Jesus Christ is saying here, that they will walk with me, this is God's plan from the beginning. Because we have implied for us, even in the Garden of Eden, that God came down and walked with Adam and Eve. The Lord said that he came in the cool of the day to walk with them. And of course, it was only Adam's sin that drove really the Lord away, or drove at, the Lord drove Adam away out of the garden. But it certainly seems like it was the Lord's habit to come and have pers- uh, close, personal, intimate dealings with man as he maybe even literally or in a physical form walked with man. And this is something that Jesus himself desires closeness with his people he says in john 17 24 his great high priestly prayer father i desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where i am and the idea isn't i just want groupies right i I just want i just want to have a crowd to show how great i am no he, he wants to commune with his people he wants to fellowship with them let me contrast it to those who are celebrities Uh, i don't know if you're aware of this But you could, nobody here, I'm sure, would have this desire, but you could hire a celebrity to come to a personal event. If you had the money, it's exorbitant, the cost that it might, you know, the charge that they might might charge you. Um, We're talking for some people, now it depends how special they are, right, how much you're going to pay. But you could pay a million dollars and have somebody really famous come to your birthday party or some event. Now, when they come, here's this great person, right? Com- you might even be able to take a picture with them. 
You might be physically close to them. They might put on a smile and, and engage you in some way, but do they really care about you? No. It's a contract. They're acting in a very, maybe a mercenary way. They're fulfilling an obligation. That's not the way it is with the Lord Jesus. He has a heart for his people. He desires to interact with them on a personal way. This walking that he says that he's going to bless them with, this is close personal dealings with the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the real Christian, this is a reward beyond description. I mean, when the people in the church in Sardis heard this, I can walk with Jesus, how their hearts would have just been inflamed with with a passionate desire to have this made into a reality in their lives. The psalmist says, and this is the perspective of every Christian, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And the people in the church in Sardis would have said that. What else could I want except to walk with Jesus? But what does it mean that they will walk in white? They will walk in white. Well, John Stott says regarding this, he says, whether or not white stands for festivity and victory, or has any reference to the use of a white toga by Romans, it certainly symbolizes purity. It certainly symbolizes purity. This is not surprising, is it? If you're going to walk with the Lord, you've got to be pure. The Lord is far from the wicked, Proverbs 15.29 says. Isaiah 59.2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And what Jesus seems to be indicating by this walking in white is that they will be made perfectly righteous. He's probably referring to their glorification. White garments that they will be given that will clothe them in perfect righteousness. Now, the people in Sardis, they might have had unsoiled garments, but their righteousness was not perfect. They were not sinless individuals as they walked before the Lord or, in a sense, even walked with him while they were in Sardis. But Jesus Christ is promising them the day is coming when you are imperfect service to me and your imperfect still sinful heart will be changed and you will be clothed in such a way and you will be filled with my spirit in such a way as to be made perfectly righteous and we should note that these white garments were not earned but given doesn't say you'll clothe yourselves but you will be clothed and of course this speaks again to the grace of god We experience grace in every step of our salvation. We're chosen in grace. We're justified by grace, sanctified by grace, and ultimately when we're glorified, it will be by the grace of God. The glorification and perfection of the believer is but another act of God's free grace. Again, what an incentive to the true believer. What an incentive to the true believer. One man writes this, he says... It needs no mention that this was exactly the deepest desire and longing of these faithful ones. While many in the congregation lived in sin, they fought the battle of faith and strove to keep their garments pure. How this promise, that in the future they would be perfectly holy and pure, must have appealed to their inmost heart and and must have spurred them on to be faithful 
even unto death. You see, the people in Sardis, they were those who delighted themselves in the Lord, and the Lord is saying, I'm going to give you the desire of your heart. And when they prayed, and when they yearned, their desire was, Lord, I want to be freed from indwelling sin. I, I want this, this wretched heart, oh, the wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of death? And they groaned in their inner person. They desired to walk more closely with the Lord, to be free from every, every remnant, every little speck of impurity that was in their life. And when Jesus tells them, one day you'll walk with me in white, and you'll be glorified and be made perfect, how their hearts must have been so elated, and how that must have encouraged them to be faithful to him. Now, how is it that they're worthy? Right? It says here, they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. And if you are a good, reformed person, you hear this word worthy, and we're worthy, and you're like, whoa, I get a little bit uneasy, right? What exactly does this mean? Would you ever say, I'm worthy, right? But Jesus says, you are worthy. So what does he mean by this? I'm going to quote two men who I think put it very well. Then I'm going to provide an illustration. One man says this, the worthiness here denotes a congruity between the saint's state of grace on earth and that of glory. Again, a congruity between the saint's state of grace on earth and that of glory. Another man says, the declaration is not that they have any claim to heaven on the ground of their own merit, or that it will be in virtue of their own works that they will be received there, but that there is a fitness or propriety that they should thus appear in heaven. The righteousness that they pursued on earth and by the grace of God in some measure obtained by God's grace indicates their fitness to walk with Christ in white. In other words, there wasn't this great discontinuity between what they were going to be and what they were while they were on this earth. Let me illustrate it this way. It might not be a perfect illustration. Hopefully it helps you in some way to understand this idea of the lack of discontinuity that should be expected between saints on earth and saints in heaven. Let's say that I, out of the grace of my heart, wanted to bestow freely upon one of my three boys a, a privilege that was just an astounding privilege. Namely, I was going to take them to watch a New York Mets game. What an honor, right? What an honor, at least this year. And I then run into a problem. I can only take one. They haven't done anything to earn this, right? I'm going to freely bestow this gift upon them. I look at my three boys, and there's a little bit of an issue. One's a Cubs fan. <laughs> I could take him to the game. One's a Yankees fan. Massachusetts. <laughs> One's a Mets fan. One's a Mets fan. Whose life, we could say, prior to me taking them to the Mets game, whose life indicated that they were the best match for, for walking with me, as it were, to that Mets game? Say, the one who was a Mets fan previous. In other words, if, I see, if you saw my son wearing the Mets paraphernalia at the game, you would say, wait, that, that matches the way he was even before you took him to the Mets game. There wasn't this great discontinuity between what they 
what he was at City Field and what he was back in my home. And that's what I believe is being said here by the idea of worthiness. There's not this great discontinuity. The saints of God, when they appear in heaven, people won't say of them, wait a minute, you know, Amos is in heaven? If you looked at his life on earth, there was no indication that he loved Jesus. There was no indication that he hated sin. There was no indication that he was pursuing righteousness. I never would have guessed that he would be one who was walking in white with the Lord Jesus. Of course, that illustration would have been better if I could have said that I sovereignly worked in my son the desire to be in that stand. Because that's what God does in us, right? Why is it that we even have these desires and are enabled to walk before him faithfully? It's his work in us. But the worthiness, it's not just, just this idea of a match, but, but there's a match for someone great. And one commentator said that in some archaeological digs, it's been discovered that in that area, uh, it was considered a great dishonor to a deity to walk into his presence with soiled garments. And the idea being that in their ungodly religion, their false religion, they had a really high esteem for these false gods, these false deities. And you don't dare walk into the temple of that god with soiled garments. And we can say there is a similar perspective with the Lord Jesus. How high a view do we have of the Lord Jesus? That's what John set out to do. Well, really, the Lord Jesus Christ set out to do as he revealed himself to John in chapter 1. The very first thing that we need to understand is the greatness and the grandeur and the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And then we realize it's an honor, it's a privilege to walk with him. We have to be dressed in white. Now I would ask you, dear friends, before we move on to prize number two, is there any resemblance between walking in white with the Lord and your life now? Is there any resemblance between walking in white with the Lord and your life now? Meaning this, if someone said to me, or if I said to someone, well, you know, so-and-so from West Springfield Covenant Community Church, they're a Christian. They'd say, really? They're on their way to heaven? They're one of the people that Jesus Christ has said will walk with me in white? I never would have guessed it. But yeah, they go to church, they do other things, but I did not know that they were confessing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I didn't know they were a faithful follower of his. Or would they say, you know what? I can completely see that. Because and when I think of brother or so-and-so in that church, it's not a big jump from, this, from their state here on earth to their state in heaven. Their life they're walking in, as it were, in white with Christ now, in a sense. And I don't see a great discontinuity. What would be said of you? Is there any resemblance between walking in white with the Lord in your life now? Well, we move then to the second prize. And again, the Lord Jesus Christ is by these prizes seeking to encourage his people to continued endurance and steadfastness and faithfulness. And he says that their name will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now, the book of life. Now, there's a lot of very interesting things in these first couple chapters of Revelation, uh, which to some extent send my head spinning. You have things like the hidden manna, right? The white stone. And 
And some of these can be a little bit hard to understand what's it exactly getting at. Well, the book of life probably isn't as mysterious as that. It has some Old Testament roots to it. John specifically, before we get back to the Old Testament, he references it five other times, or I think five total times, no, sorry, five other times in the book of the Revelation. You've come across them even in Revelation 13.8, which I think you were there this morning, okay, if you were doing those eight verses. Um, Paul refers to the book of life in Philippians 4.3, his fellow workers who name, whose names are written in the book of life. And you remember the incident with the golden calf, Exodus 32. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people, and he says, but now, he says to the Lord, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Daniel 12.1, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. So this book, this record that God has, it deals with those who are living. It deals with those who are God's people. And there's other passages of the word of God. And I think that if I was going to summarize what this book of life was all about, I'd summarize it this way. Using not only these passages, but other ones that speak to it. The book of life is God's record of those that he has predestined to give life to, who in time are given that life, who during this age reflect that life, and who will eternally enjoy true life. See, we can't forget, this is the book of life. It it has to deal with life. So it's those who God predestined to give life to, in time they're given that life, they reflect that life in this age, and they will eternally enjoy true life. Those whose names are written are those who are really alive. And this is no surprise when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to a dead church that he'd bring the book of life into play, is it? The book of life is not just, it's not just that they are those who will inherit eternal life, but those who right now are spiritually alive. This is why those who have not soiled their garments are those whose names are currently, presently written in the book of life. And that's why in Revelation 21, verse 27, says, Nothing impure will ever enter, speaking of heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, there's this connection between the record that God has and life and being pure. And the Lord Jesus says he will not blot their names out of the book, out of that book. Now, in the Greek, there's a double negative that's used. And, of course, it's used for emphasis. Jesus Christ wants to emphasize, listen, what I'm telling you is absolutely sure. I will never, ever blot your name out of that book. It reminds me of the hymn that we sometimes sing. The soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, No, never forsake, right? It's that emphasis, repeating it for emphasis. Wants to make it sure. I'm never, ever, ever, under any circumstance, going to forsake my people. And that's what Jesus Christ is saying here. Under no circumstance will your name ever be removed from that book. Not that it's possible to be removed, but it's Jesus Christ 
using this language to strengthen the faith of his people. Jesus speaks in such an emphatic way, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, to convince us of the facts of what he's conveying. He wants faith to be encouraged. He wants resolve to be strengthened. Every year, I'm an accountant, and I'm not going to say I have the privilege to do this, but every year I go to conferences in Atlantic City uh, because that's where they hold all the conferences. You get cheap hotel rooms and things like that. And, um, you know, you walk through the casinos, and you see people gambling. And there are people who, on the smallest hopes, they're putting their money in the slot machines. You know, they're at the craps tables. You know, they're just hoping, like, there's this point-zero-something percent chance that they'll make some money. And yet they, they go at it diligently, and they commit their lives to it, and they are really zealous in making sure they're there and, and going through all their gambling activities. Imagine there was a casino that 100% you will never lose any money. I mean, the people that would flock there, the people that, I mean, the lines would be to the ends of the earth. And what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying is, there's no risk here. Your name will never be blotted. If you follow me, if you are faithful to me, if you keep your, if you keep your clothes from being soiled, if you remain one of my faithful disciples, never, ever, ever, under no circumstances, there's no risk of loss for your soul. I mean, it's guaranteed 100%. Why in the world wouldn't every child of God say, I'm going to commit my whole life in this direction then? And that's what Jesus wants his people to do. Not be thinking in the back of their head, is it really worth it? Am I going to lose out in the end? Well, that brings us to prize number three, very briefly here. Jesus will confess that person's name before the Father and the angels. He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, if you know your Bible, maybe this rings a bell in your mind. Who else said these words? It's really not who else. It's when, because the Lord Jesus Christ said these words when he walked this earth. And, and in Matthew chapter 10, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And Luke 12, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So the Lord Jesus Christ is tying in this idea of, you confess me, you acknowledge me, I'm going to acknowledge you. Now here in Revelation, it's only the second half. But almost certainly the first half is implied. Because what the people in Sardis were doing, by living these righteous lives, by keeping their garments unsoiled, they were confessing Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is giving an indication of what it means, in part, to conquer. When he says, the one who conquers... Well, you might say, well, what does it mean to conquer? Well, a significant part is, I confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when I'm on this earth. In the face of all opposition, in the face of all deadness, when I'm swimming against the tide, if I'm the only one, I'm clinging to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm owning him as my Lord and Savior. I'm following him even if I'm the only person. By their words and life, 
the people that Jesus confesses before his father and before the angels are those that have professed allegiance to him. And we're reminded here that the Lord Jesus will never treat you worse than you treat him. Meaning there's never somebody who's so devoted to the cause of Christ, who clings to the name of Christ and honors his laws and his person, and Jesus treats as though they're second class. So Jesus says, you honor my name, I'll acknowledge your name. You speak of me, I'll speak of you. You own me before men, I'll own you before my Father. Jesus will never treat you worse than you treat him. But when Jesus Christ says here that he'll confess his name, the name of the faithful one, before his Father and before the angels, we need to see how personal this is. The very name is confessed. The very name is confessed. And again, this matches the personal confession that the saints made of the name of Christ. When they were on earth, they weren't just religious people. They weren't just spiritual people. They just weren't church-going people. They were people devoted to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. They confessed the name, the specific name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His very name. And he confesses their very names. And if you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not a surprise. He knew people's names. He used people's names even when he was on earth. Who can forget that tender way in which he spoke to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead? Mary. Right? Just, a, just using her name. He knew her name. He spoke her name. Even here in Revelation chapter 2, the Lord refers to his faithful witness, Antipas. Antipas didn't get lost in the crowd. Jesus knew his name. Jesus confessed his name. Jesus mentioned his name of a single individual. In Isaiah 43.1, the Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. In John 10, verses 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus says, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. I just came from a conference, and there's a lot of people at the conference. And because there's a lot of people, and a lot of people don't know each other, you wear a name tag. And everybody's walking around, especially myself, and you walk up to somebody you don't know, and you're kind of, what's their name tag, right? You're kind of staring at their navel to see what their name tag is. And they're doing the same for you, because they don't know who you are. And this is a group of like 150 people. It's not even that big. And isn't it wonderful, though, when you have that one person who does know you, and they don't have to look at the name tag, and they say, Amos. They might not even be near you, but, oh, Brother Amos. Right? And they walk over to you. They greet you by name. Have the personal introduction. When we stand in glory, when the saints of God and Sardis stand in glory, and they're surrounded by a whole host of witnesses, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions, and the Lord Jesus Christ is among them, he won't need a name tag. 
It won't be that he'll say, well, I know I saved a whole host of people from every kindred, tongue, tribe, and nation, but what's your name again? Yes, this guy, this guy was on my side. This guy's a good guy. No, it'll be before the Father and before the angels. Amos and Joe and Sally. By name, he's confessing them. And dear saints, we need to rejoice in Christ's personal knowledge of those who are faithful to him. He has his eye upon you. He loves you. He knows you. And he will confess you. And it's these three prizes that he speaks of, prizes that are given to those who conquer in his name. They're held out to encourage us because it's hard to be a Christian and he knows it and we're oppressed and assaulted on every side. Not to say from even within. And may the Lord use these encouragements in your lives to spur you on in your walk with the Lord Jesus that you would remain faithful to him in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Amen. Let's seek the Lord's face in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of the rewards that the Lord Jesus Christ holds out for his faithful followers. You know, Lord, how discouraged and how depressed we can get. You know the saints back in the day of John, the saints in Sardis, how discouraged and depressed they often were, and how they felt and wondered would they be able to endure until the very end. And you held out these rewards to encourage them, to incentivize them, to spur them on. And Lord, we pray that as we see these great and glorious rewards held out, that you would use them for good in our lives, that we would be encouraged to live for you, to, commute, to, to walk with you, to be faithful to you, to not give up the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we confess that we're weak, and in and of ourselves there is absolutely no hope. We need the help of your spirit. We need the enabling of your spirit. And we ask that you would enable us to do this. Lord, may, we, may you give us ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the churches. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.